Uh, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor here. So glad that you are here this morning. We're kicking off a brand new series called In Vino Veritas. It's going to be a three-week series, and it looks like it's about wine, and it kind of is, but if you're not really a wine person, that's okay, because really the series is more about joy. Um, now, if you're not a joy person, um, then you're probably going to hate this series, but that's okay. It sounds like you're into that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, but uh, we're going to be looking at what wine teaches us about um, joy and what, uh, what we can learn from uh, joy in that way. So inside of your program is a, a note sheet, and in case I say something interesting, you can write it down. Um, <clears throat> there, the, the term in vino veritas is, is, is Latin for this, in wine truth, and the essence of, and the reason this is kind of a popular thing, or it's unlike signs when you go to you know, wineries and stuff like that. Is because it means like that there's something in us that wine has this ability to bring out a side of us that sometimes reveals our more true self, that our walls can come down, our walls of self-consciousness and propriety um, can come down a little bit, and we can have genuine, honest, co- open conversations, and uh, a glass of wine uh, helps you laugh and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and unfortunately, it can also then go too far, and then you can reveal too much of it. We all uh, are aware of, of that, too. The walls can come down too far. But I want to play a game to kick this thing off with you. If that's true of life, then, then here's another food drink game uh, that we're going to play together. Um, it's, the, it's if you've ever traveled... This is what you, this is called the, the, you know, your friends are all tour guides, apparently. They turn into tour guides when you tell them, I'm going somewhere. So last week, my wife and I had a chance to go visit a friend who pastors a church down in Portland, uh, and we, we told them, yeah, we're going to Portland this weekend. And this is what happens. Oh, if you're going to blank, you have to try blank. You have those friends, you have those family members, this is your mom, right? Oh, if you're going. So we're going to play a game, you're going to participate, this is an all, all skate, everybody gets to play, ready? If you're going, so the first one is this, if you're going to Portland, oh, you're going to Portland? Oh my gosh, you have to try Voodoo Donuts. The correct answer is Voodoo Donuts, nice job everybody. <laughs> that is absolutely the correct answer, which by the way, we did, we stood out in line, it was hot, it's cash only, they speed you through there, and it was meh, it was all right, but whatever. Uh, number two, if you're going to New Orleans, oh, you're going to New Orleans? Oh, my gosh. You have to try. Yes, there it is. Beignets, beignets at the Cafe Du Monde. That's the one, right? The other option is uh, you have to try the booze, which is, I, I get it. I understand that. But all right, number three, if you're going, this is our big one, the big one here. If you're going, oh, you're going to the Tri-Cities? Oh my gosh. You have got to try. What is it? He's like, yes, that's the right answer, everybody. Gold star. No, I'm just kidding. Somebody get her coffee. Uh, you have to try. Some people said spud nuts. Or, you know, I, I, I always grew up like, you have to try the talk. I got sick of saying taco trucks and Olive Garden. Okay. That's, that's like the go to. Oh, you have to try Olive Garden. You have to try. This is what people, when I, we worked on, uh, on the West Side for like a year, right over in Seattle. And we told people we're coming back. This is about seven years ago. We're going to go back to the Tri-Cities, back to our home, and, and start a church. And like, oh, Tri-Cities. Even though we were from there. Oh, you're from the Tri-Cities? You have to try 
the wine. This is what people on the wet side know us for. This is what we're known for, everybody, our wine. That is, and I, and I, I came from a um, church and a home environment where in our, I was on staff at a church where the denomination has like this anti-alcohol um, or abstinence policy for alcohol. And so uh, we, I, my wife and I never drank anything while we were on staff at my dad's church. And then we went over to Bothell uh, and that church was um, like a pendulum shift in the opposite direction, okay? And so then I, I mentioned I was coming back home and so uh, they, they said, oh, you have to try the wine. I was like, oh, I never, it's weird. I lived in the Tri-Cities almost my entire life and I had never, I was not into the wine thing. They're like, What? You know, like it was, it'd be a travesty, is what they said. It would be a travesty to live in that part of the country, wine country, and not be into wine. It would be an injustice. And they would say it with like this, and I'm like, I don't think you know the word injustice like I do. Anyways, uh, I said, all right, so I'm going to get into it. So we, when we moved back, I bought a couple of books, because this is what you do, this is what I do. You either watch a movie or documentary, you buy some books about like whatever subject or person in history or whatever you're trying to learn about. And so I bought two books. One is called uh, Educating Peter. The other one is called Accidental Connoisseur. I say that not because they're great books, but because I just wanted to prove to you that this is legit, that I'm not lying. When I'm not to, this is not just a pastor's story, okay? I bought these two books. I learned a lot of things about wine. I learned how to pronounce the word terroir. I learned that wine uh, is expensive uh, and it's, it's fancy. And that there's a culture associated with with wine, all right, and that's what we're going to learn from. There is a culture of two big things that popped out in my mind as we're talking about this. A culture of uh, that basically tells us a few things. One, it's okay to drink a bottle of wine, but it's not okay to drink from a bottle of wine. I learned that in those books. You can drink a bottle of wine, but don't drink from it. That's a little different. You don't guzzle wine. You swirl it. You smell it. You sip it, you enjoy it, you do pretty much everything but actually drink it. That's part of the thing. And the wine pace is insanely slow. Have you noticed this? It's always slow. I've never gone to Bookwalter and been like, this is so, the, the speed of service here is so amazing. I've always gone there and it's, you just block off your whole night to go there. It's, it must be the easiest place ever to wait tables. I don't know if anybody of you know somebody that has worked there or whatever, but I used to work in a, uh, uh, a restaurant called Six Degrees over in Kennewick, and it was like a burger joint place. And people would be like, um, excuse me, I ordered my burger like four minutes ago. And I'm like, do you want it raw or shall we cook it for you? You know what I mean? Like the pace was the expected pace. was, And we got judged based on how fast we could turn tables, right? Part of it was like, dude, that table's been sitting there. Can you make sure that they got their check? Are they cleared out? We need to be, we need to be pumping people through this place. Bookwalter is like, come, spend the evening with us. Did you bring a cot? Why don't you stay the night? We're all just having a great old time. Nobody has anywhere to be. That's the pace of which it's going to, and you have to plan accordingly. In Greco-Roman times, which is the times when the Bible was written, the, the culture in which we, uh, out of which we get the Bible, the wine was no longer a prerogative of the elite, but had become a basic food item. It was a staple in every household at wine. You just, or at dinner, you just had wine. Greeks in particular believe that the moderate consumption of wine set them apart from barbarians. Only barbarians don't drink wine. So the conclusion that we come to in today is that wine snobs have been around for literally centuries, everybody. <laughs> literally, those barbarians who don't understand Washington wine. All right. 
Two things about the culture that I think are important. Number one is leisure, and the other thing is arrival. Wine is a culture of leisure and a, and a culture of arrival. We'll spend some time talking about it. Number one is this idea of a culture of leisure. If you think of all of the advertisements that you see for wineries, whether you're flying into the Pasco airport and you get off the plane and you're waiting for your bags and you look up and on the walls of this thing are advertisements for all of the different buses that'll take you or limos that'll take you, all the different wine tastings and everything around there. And what, you, what do you see in the pictures of, of the things that are represented? What are they advertising? What they're advertising is people sitting in wooden Adirondack chairs with a campfire and no place to be, right? This is the leisure life. Even in an airport, not even just Tri-Cities Airport, but other airports that you see, it's an advertisement of contrast, and your life is busy. Isn't this culture crazy? Isn't this rush to get to the gate or from the gate to the terminal, from the terminal to the baggage claim? Isn't it nuts? Isn't this pace crazy? There is a place that you can go. There's a place that you can, can go. It's called Bernard Griffin. It's called Fidelitas. It's called whatever this place where, there, where time stops. And, uh, and you can come and enjoy. It's this culture, again, of leisure. What is leisure if not the opposite of work? Production, achievement, progress. They don't say, come over here. It's not a place. Listen, the, these wineries are not places that you bring your work, bring your computer, get some work done while you sit. Nobody does that. That would be so weird. You go to coffee shops for that. You go to wineries to do nothing, to do nothing. And it seems to be okay in that place. Uh, there's a term uh, that I, I want to introduce you. It's called um, Panem et Circensis. It's the motto of the Roman imperial rulers. And it basically comes out or is translated as this. Let us give bread to the people and they will be satisfied. Let us occasionally take them to the circus and they will be happy. Rome established itself as one of the world's greatest empires. They spread themselves throughout conquering nations and setting up small uh, governments and people in authority and prefects and all kinds of uh, people to be able to, to monitor involvement. And they realized, listen, with us being spread so thin throughout the Roman Empire, it is important that we understand how people think and operate. And they don't really like to be oppressed. They don't really like to be um, uh, not in control. And there's a potential for rebellion. Sometimes it become too much. People get fed up and they begin to form these circles and their revolutions begin. And so in, in order to quell the revolutionary, the, the, the rebel state that is in a lot of people, we must do things, small things for them, allow them little opportunities to escape the reality of the status quo and for a minute get a breath of freedom and then perhaps they won't rebel in that way. So what they do is they establish these gladiator games. They so desperately want for somebody to die for blood. And so they say, come watch these people fight for their lives and kill each other. And in doing so, that kind of takes a little bit of that fight out of you, and perhaps you'll be less likely to fight us in response. Let us give bread to the people, and they will be satisfied. Let us occasionally take them to the circus, and they'll be happy. The point of it is there is this thing in life that if, it, if there's no outlet, if there's no opportunity for play, if there's no leisure, Leisure is important. You cannot produce your entire life. There must be outlets for play and for leisure, or else the people will revolt. And so in modern day society, I, our, we don't go to the gladiator games. We uh, watch football instead, which anyways, whatever. And then we also, here's what we do, right? We work for the weekend. We go into the office on Monday, and we're like, ah, Monday. 
And Wednesday, we're just trying to fight through the midst, the middle of the week. It's the middle of the work. We can get to Friday. And Friday just feels different, doesn't it? We have a different dress code. We show up to work. We're like, boom, boom, boom. Let's get this done. Let's get out of here because it's the weekend. And I've got Saturday and Sunday to do whatever I want to refresh myself to get back to it. Listen, labor unions uh, for, for a long time ago recognized that we're going to fight for the employees. Uh, we're going to fight for the workers, for the labor force of the United States because it is not healthy. It is not healthy to work seven days a week or six days a week. There must be breaks in between. We must give the people a release from their work. And the reason it works for us is because it's that freedom that then allows us the opportunity to get back into production. We need a little bit of a break so that we don't get fed up with this. These expectations for us, right? For those in our culture who view monogamous marriage as repressive, the bachelor or bachelorette parties are one last hurrah before the old ball and chain, isn't it? We're about to enter into a time of, so we get one last chance to go and be with the boys or be with the girls. In fact, even when you get married, then what happens? You get married, you begin to start a family, and all of a sudden it just becomes too much, and you realize, I need to get away. I need, I need a little guy time. I need a little girl time. I need a poker night. I need a shopping trip. I need to go to the this, that, and the other thing. Oh, we just need some time for ourselves to be able to uh, regain our strength, to enter back into what we're doing. Any drilled immorality needs occasional suspension and momentary excesses if it is to be followed. Their function is to mitigate the burdens which precede and follow them. In the workforce, it came with vacations as well. It's not only Saturday and Sunday, but um, employers figured out, listen, it is important for us to build into the salary package or the compensation package the idea of a paid vacation time. So many of you guys have taken that liberty this summer. You've gone on vacation. You've been paid to not be somewhere. I don't care where you go. You go wherever you want. We'll still pay you three, four, five weeks, six weeks. You own the business whenever you want, right? Uh, and, and you you get to go, and and the purpose, though, is go, enjoy yourself, have a good time, and be ready to get back to the grindstone on Monday. We do it so that we can come back and be more fulfilled workers moving forward in this. And if it's not weekends, and if it's not vacations, then sometimes it is that idea of something that we look forward to. This uh, our, our favorite time of year is, for, for a lot of us... Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm talking about. It's the weekly escape. It's the Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Monday nights, and now even Thursday nights. And occasionally, if you play your cards right, Fridays and Saturdays, if you're into high school football and college football, you can escape the doldrums of the work life in so many different ways to enjoy football. And not only can we escape from the realities of life through football, we can also do it through this thing called fantasy football. Let me, let me talk you through what this is. This is when people draft imaginary players, well, not imaginary, real players, but through imaginary transactions to be able to to form this like super team that doesn't actually exist, but kind of exists, at least on ESPNFantasyFootball.com. And then we play all of our different friends. And when somebody asks us, so what's the point of this? Who doesn't know anything about fantasy football? We say, so that I can beat my friends in fantasy football and prove to them I am superior in them in every different arena of life, but especially in the arena of fantasy football. And it sounds ridiculous coming out of our mouths, but we spend money and time, and all week long we escape even just for a moment to acquire that waiver and do the draft pick and you know, offer the, up this trade. We're always, we're always escaping for the moment to be able to do this. And whenever the question comes out, what's the point, it almost ruins it for us, doesn't it? Do you remember as a kid having a hobby like mine, baseball cards? 
I'd say, Dad, give me a dollar. Can I have a dollar, Dad? I'll, I'll mow the grass. I'll pick up the dog food, whatever. Give me a dollar. What do you want a dollar? I'm going to go buy baseball cards. I go buy baseball cards. I bring them back. I'd open the pack with them. It's the smell. It's like nostalgic. I'm like, oh, shuffling through all these things. And he'd say, so what are these? And I'd say, well, there are cards with baseball players on them. And then he'd ask that ever-deadening question, the question that ruins everything. What's the point of those? And you're like, well, you collect them, and then they're worth money <laughs> someday, and then you trade them, and don't ruin this for me, Dad. These are, this is my joy in this life. My, my daughter um, is nine. She started collecting these things called, some of you, your parents of, of small kids right now, Shopkins, have you heard of these Shopkins things? They're literally little plastic. This is what they look like. Um, and it's basically $100 for that is what it feels like. And it's little plastic figurines of household appliances and brushes and kitchenware and, uh, I don't know, fries. I, and, and, she, and, they have, and she brings them home. She's like, oh, Shopkins. She opens them up, and I'm like, cool. What's the point of these? What do you do with these? And she's like, well, you just... This is what you do with them. And you're like, oh. You know, and you, like, you're trying not to be disappointed. I don't want to steal your joy from you. But that question of what's the purpose, what's the point, puts joy, puts leisure, puts this thing, this enjoyment thing into this new category of does it have to serve a purpose? What if it doesn't serve? What if I just enjoy spending time with Shopkins, Dad? Okay, yeah, totally. Do your thing, whatever you want to do. Does everything in this life have to have a purpose? What about play for the sake of play? Is there any value in that? In an achievement-obsessed culture, which, by the way, is where we live, right? Play for play's sake is a waste of precious resources, time, and money. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, what we learned from a basic overview of kind of Scripture as a whole, taken in its entirety, is that regular consumption of wine was pretty normal for them. Paul advocates for Timothy to start drinking a glass to settle his stomach on something. And they, they saw it as a lot of things. They saw it for health reasons and for digestion things. And for a lot of people, it was safer than water because of the fermentation process. But excessive wine drinking was frowned upon, thus demonstrating the exception. Which leads us to this question that we often get asked, especially from family members who come at it with a history probably of an addictive you know, uncle or husband or grandpa or something, somewhere where alcohol has kind of ruined them or ruined kind of the things for them and, and jaded their perspective on it. And they say, well, if you're not drinking to get wine to get drunk, then what's the point of it? And again, it's that question of, well, what's the point? Is it, is it um, can, can life, can some parts of life be leisure for leisure's sake? Can play be for play's sake? Does it have to have a point to this? Psalm 104, this is one of um, David's psalms that he writes. And he um, he writes so many things about life, uh, the, the ups and the downs of it. A lot of times it's like these, these negative things. Why do you allow these bad things to happen to me? Why do you allow me to fail and that person to succeed? I, I don't get it. But then he also writes these very positive things, specifically about creation. When I look at the things uh, that you've created, who am I? Who am I? You know, to ask any of these questions. So in 104.15, he says, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens humans' hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. In other words, an enjoyment of creation for creation's sake. That's what he's talking about. And what we see to understand, well, is this, is this uh, fair? Is this worthy enough? Is, is 
leisure and play for play's sake? Is that something that is an escape? Is, is, is it more than that? Is it, is it even less than that? Jewish scriptures open up in Genesis chapter 1 with this idea, which Genesis is just the word, is actually origins. In their origin story, the Jewish people, when they discuss their origin story, who are we and where do we come from and what is God like and who are we created to be? In the very first chapter, when he walks through the creation story, God's doing all this creation of, uh, of things. He creates man in his own image. He sets him in this world with an abundance of creation, and he tells him and he gives him two things. One is this idea of submission, and the other is dominion. Submission looks like this. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree. Remember that you are underneath my authority. That, when, that I set the rules, that you do not set the rules for yourself, that I know something that you don't know about all of this. Therefore, it would be worth your while to adhere to my ethics, adhere to my rules, adhere to my things. And listen, this is an important part of life um, for, the, for the primary reason that in our modern day society, we do not like the idea of being under the authority of anybody. Uh, we are very independent, and it, our, our secular mindset is that, who are you to tell me what to do? Uh, and so our biggest issue and our biggest beef with God, a lot of times with the idea of God, is why would I submit myself to some authority thing that's great? Uh, we're very pragmatic. If it helps me get to where I want to be, I like the passage of Scripture, Brent, that you talk about that helped me to get to the life that I want to be. But the idea of being under the authority of doing things because God said for me to do something, uh, we'll see. When it works out for me, I'll do it. When I'm doing it for authority's sake, out of submission's sake, then I'm not sure I'm going to do it. A lot of the Christian life comes and falls under this category of submission, which is why each and every week we gather together, we look at Scripture, we figure out what are some godly ethics, what are some of the things that we should or should not do based on what God has to say about life. I mean, so much of, of the Christian life is built around ethics, and I liken it to work, right? We, we do these things because somebody told us to do these things. The reason that you are going to go to work on Monday and the reason that you're going to do the things that whatever it is that you do at work on Monday is because somebody told you to do them, a boss, a supervisor, a board, or, or, or whatever. That's submission. A large part of our life is spent under submission. But then also, in the same breath, he follows up with, don't eat from the fruit of that tree, but fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth. Now, we take that to mean... Uh, well, they start out with just Adam and Eve and then, you know, have lots of babies. That's what we kind of fill the earth translates to us as um, procreation that way. Yes, but it's not limited to that. Fill the earth is use your creative powers, use the talents that you've been blessed with and create. I've created, I've started the creation process for you. Now you jump in. Let's do this thing together. Let's get our hands dirty in this creative process. And subdue it. Subdue is, a, is almost a, it sounds negative. It sounds like um, subdue is like uh, when a criminal like tries to do something and the police officer or security officer has to subdue that person, like hold them in check, right? That's what subdue, that's our like version of, of subdue. But the translation there, the word actually means like have dominion over it. Dominion means I'm in control. I get to kind of play, how, play out how some things work and I get to be a steward or a responsible adherent to what's being produced. I create, I also have a process in the control of it. That part of the creation process for us as, as, um, as human beings is, I think, as, as mankind, 
at the level of consciousness that he created us with, have a responsibility to be stewards of God's creation as we co-create in it. Fill the earth and subdue it. There's a lot of play elements in there. There's a lot of freedom in this. When it comes to ethics, there's submission. Here's what you do. I'm being told. Fill the earth and subdue it is pretty open-ended. There's a lot of freedom there. There's play involved in this. And these two things, a proper understanding of these two things go well together. You focus too much on work, life begins to feel oppressive. You focus too much on play, and and we don't understand what under authority means. But I think that from the very beginning, the Jewish mindset, people's mindset had this very thing uh, that there's in us a pull towards both of these things. Now, the church has focused primarily on ethics and has not created a great theology of play. So my question to you to follow it up with, as this series hopefully delves more into the creative process and what does it mean to play well and be okay with an end-all purpose of just play for play's sake, here's my question for you. Why did God create the world? It sounds like a very childlike basic question. It sounds like a question that we're probably asking in this theater or this theater, not usually in this theater, right? Why did God create the world? The reality is he didn't need to. His divinity doesn't rest on having created something. It's not like he wasn't God until he created the world, and now now that he has some underlings that are supposed to worship him and read his Bible and live the way that he tells them to live, now he's God. He was God prior to that. He was God with it. Without it, it doesn't even matter. He didn't need to do this. That's different for me. I became a parent when I had a kid. I was not a parent uh, until I had the kid. That was conditional. God's title for himself, his divinity, is not conditional. So then why create? The existence of the world is not necessary. He, was, he did not do it out of obligation. He did not do it because somebody told him to do so. The Christian foundation for the motivation for God to create the world and everything that's in it is out of a sense of joy, meaningfulness, even though it wasn't necessary. It's meaningful, even though it wasn't necessary. That is a powerful word, this, this idea of something that's meaningful but not necessary. When I buy my wife flowers, which, by the way, is not often enough, she can vouch for that, it is meaningful, but even she would agree it's not necessary, right? We're not married because I bought her enough flowers. Like, all of a sudden, I got to the point where she's like, well, now I'm obligated. Yes, I will, I will say yes and marry you. We're not not married if I don't do it often enough. We're just not happily married. But it has nothing to do with the actual gift of it. It's meaningful, but it's not necessary. Now, here's how she can ruin the whole situation for me. When I come home with flowers and I present them to her as a meaningful but not necessary sign of our relationship, and she asks me the question, what are these for? I'm like, oh, come on. What are these for? It's just because I love you. It's meaningful, but not necessary. She's like, what are these for? And the way that I can ruin it is to have an answer to that question. Well, I'd really like to go on this trip with the guys, but I understand that that leaves you with the kids. And so I'm trying to, when the point of it, when there is a purpose for it, because listen, in an achievement-based culture, everything has to have a point and a purpose. Why are we doing this? 
well, we do this so that we can make money. Well, why are you making money? So that we can provide this comfortable life for our kids and our family and our education and this. And, and so that's why we do this. And everything logically lines up and we have a purpose for everything. And yet in the theology of play, there are some things that happen in life that just don't serve a purpose. It's just for the pure enjoyment of the people participating in the process. And it's meaningful, but it's not necessary. Why'd you buy those baseball cards as a kid, Brent? I don't, it was meaningful to me, but it wasn't necessary it was just the joy that comes from experiencing creation or something about the created world that is aesthetic in nature for me, that provides value for me. Listen, until we understand that we were created under authority and under the submission of a heavenly Father who knows us better than we know ourselves, and can fully understand the freedom that he has extended to us out of his graciousness, that until we understand that life is full of elements of ethics and play, of work and leisure, that we do some things because we're told to do them, we do other things just because we can, that there's an element of life that is just, there doesn't have to be a purpose for it. We just experience life because life is a gift, and love is the point. Until we get that, if we're too heavily weighted in one direction, if life is all about work and what's the point and what's the point and what's the point, it becomes logical and we don't do a good job of playing. We go into that because vacation time tells us we have to and they don't like it when we work Saturdays and Sundays all the time because then they feel obligated to pay us overtime. But if we could, we would because it makes us feel a sense of importance and a sense of being needed and a sense of value and it speaks to our identity but our identity is what wrapped up in what we produce then? Are we not then slaves to that? Have we not then adopted even a, a mentality of I am what I produce, I am what I produce, I am what I produce? Is there not a more American mindset than I am what I produce? Are we not called then in Scripture to pull ourselves away from that, to enjoy leisure in vino verita? There is truth in experiencing leisure simply for leisure's sake and to not ask ourselves the question, well, what's the point of this? The point is to experience life. They say that people uh, regret um, buying things more than they do paying for experiences. When you pay for an experience, you have nothing to show for it other than the memory of having gone bungee jumping, having traveled, having seen the world, having gone to school, having done this. And it begins to be the stories that we tell rather than a physical object that we point to that sits in our garage and we never use. And it shapes, this has a better, uh, a better ability to shape our identity than this object that looks good on a balance sheet or a, a description of our assets or whatever. This quote that I'm going to show you on the screen is one that is the reason, I read this about three months ago, and it was the reason why I was like, I got to talk about joy. I got to talk about play. We've talked enough about work. I've done several series on work. Listen, work is a finding vocational value in your work, doing something that, that takes as much time in your life as work does, and not having some sort of a perceived value in it um, is completely wrong. You should have a, a holistic perspective on the value of work as a Christian, as I invest my life and my time into a 40, 50, 60 hour work week, uh, that I can look back and have something that I'm proud of. Uh, listen, 
if you go on our uh, talks page, uh, look in the back. We did um, one on called Every Good Endeavor, which is a great one. We did, we've done two series called Work Sucks and Then You Die. We did it twice um, because um, it's a great title, and we just didn't want to create anything more on it. Um, so we've, we've talked about work enough. But my fear is um, that... My, my, my hope is I want to bring into a balance of joy. Why? Because of all accusations against Christians, the most terrible one was uttered by Nishki when he said that Christians had no joy and we must recover the meaning of this great joy. Now, you may not know who Friedrich Nietzsche was. He was a German philosopher who talked about the will to power, the superman, the superego, all that kind of stuff. Ignore all that. Screw it. doesn't matter. You learned that in philosophy class and at CBC and you forgot it already. doesn't matter. Erase that. Let's just put whoever it is that you know and care about and whose opinion you value. Let's put a loved one. Let's put a friend. Let's put somebody who doesn't share the same faith that you do, but has opinions that you hold to be, like their opinion counts in your eyes. Of all the accusations against Christians, the most terrible one was uttered by, insert that person's name here, when they say and they look at my life and the life of other people as Christians who have no joy. They have no joy. They don't experience life, they work, and on the one of the two days that they have off during the week, they go to church. They bring their, they dress their family. They show up. They sit, they sing songs in a public setting publicly, which we don't do in any other arena of life, by the way, other than birthday parties, and everybody hates that. That's the worst part of a birthday party, isn't it? Let's all sing together. Dumb, right? So now they go to church, they stand in these rows, and a band plays finally some semi-decent music, but it, but it's still public singing. And then they put money in these blue. They get guilted, and then they pay them for it. They're like, "You suck." Now give us money. And then they do it, and they leave, and they come back next week. There's no joy in that. Listen, if if we are not experiencing the joy of living life, then we are doing a disservice to our creator God, who I think created us for vocational work, finding value in our work, finding value in our rest, finding value in our pleasure, finding value in our joy, and the ability to live life, a life that's worth living. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's incredibly powerful. A culture of leisure. Number two, and I'm going to speed through this because we're Going along, a culture of arrival. Not only is it wine a culture of leisure, it's a culture of arrival. When you think back to those advertisements that I talked about in the Tri-Cities Airport, as you get off and you go to the baggage claim and you look up, who's pictured? What, who, what type of a person is characterized in those pictures? Typically, it's not somebody who's young. It's usually like middle-aged or a little bit older, somebody who has probably a decent amount of money. They're probably not putting this meal on their credit card and paying it off in six months with 12 easy payments. They probably have enough to cover this, right? They don't have any place to be. They're probably going to go to work on Monday, but they're the boss. It looks like they could call in and be like, you know what? We had a great time at the winery on Sunday night. I'm going to come in at noon. You know what? Because the, they don't even have to work, but they probably do because who could pass up a six-figure job? And you gotta, who, who's going to buy all those Ralph Lauren polos if they don't actually go to work at some point? So this is the, the picture, though, is one of not somebody who is on the verge of making it or is a long ways off and they got kids crawling all over them. They're just trying to survive life. That's somebody who's made it. It's in a sense of arrival. It's a sense of, don't you want to be here too someday? Listen, I know you're not there yet, but you could get there in 
temporary fashion by coming to our winery tonight, but ultimately, this is the life that you want to live. You want to live in uh, Phoenix during the winter months, and then you're going to come live in the Tri-Cities for the rest of the year, and you're going to do the snowbird thing, and you travel back and forth, and you're going to just enjoy all of the things that life has to throw at you. It's a symbol of arrival. It's a symbol of someday this could be you too, right? All right. In Scripture, we see wine associated with a sense of arrival for the Jewish people as well. Uh, their history was pretty rocky. You know that, that their nation started with the family of Abraham, then they find themselves slaves in Egypt. They get liberated from Egypt. They go into the promised land that God has given them. Uh, while they're in the promised land, they begin to establish this life. They begin to um, build a temple. They begin to become an actual recognized nation in the eyes of the world. Unfortunately, through kind of forgetfulness of who God was and his provisions for them, God allows the Assyrians to come through the north, the Babylonians come through the south, and they get hauled off into captivity into Babylon, which is called the Great Exile. While they're in exile, they begin to put together and piece together all of the different extant literature um, that we know as the Bible. The original Bible wasn't produced until that time. They go, we need to know where we come from and what we're about. Part of the, that collection, that library of books that we know as the Hebrew Scriptures, contains what are called the prophets. They had two different categories of prophets, major and minor prophets, based on the size of the literature. Major prophets typically have 40, 50 chapters. The minor prophets have 10, 12, that kind of thing. It's not like he's super important. He's not important. In the prophetic literature, many times it was speaking about um, their status as a nation, how they had gone from somebody who was God's chosen people to now seemingly God's forgotten people, but prayerful that a repentance would then allow God or cause God to change his mind about their treatment and then turn back on themselves. And someday, someday, we'll get out of this hellhole that is Babylon and get back to our nation as a whole and reestablish and we'll rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of the nation of Israel. So they lived, they lived in this medium time. They lived with this hopeful discussion. The prophets was, was, the prophetic literature was very negative in terms of their past, but hopeful for the future. Let me show you a couple of them right now. Amos chapter 9, verse 14 and 15. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards plant vineyards and drink their wine. The, the, the imagery in this is that they have enough time to plant vineyards, which, you know, if you're working viticulture, you know that it takes years and years for vines to produce the quality of wine that you want. And then not only that, but the, you know, not when you pick the fruit, but then it has to sit in a barrel and ferment for uh, several times. So this is, the idea is that, the, that this is not a short-term solution. God is operating in the long term here. It's not a quick fix. It's a long-term fix. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land. They shall never again be plucked up. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple. This is their, this is their picture of the future. When all of this is over, what comes next is this. The Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, which is a statement about how their religion compares to all the other world religions. It will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. In other words, their picture is at some point, the mountain of the Lord is established and everybody turns and says, that is the one true God. He will determine everything for us. We will come under his uh, submission to his authority. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning 
hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. They don't need swords anymore. Why would they need swords? Swords are for fighting. We're not fighting anymore. Why would they need spears? They don't need spears anymore. Let's put them to work in terms of labor tools. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. A culture of arrival. If you could only get here, here's what comes next. If you play your cards right, here's what's in store for you. Listen, the reason I think this is important is because um, perhaps you grew up in a culture uh, like I grew up in a culture where heaven was a place that you go after you die that looked a lot like church. And you're like, like this eternity of like music and listen to somebody talk, like, I don't know, man, that sounds like the other place that we're not supposed to go to. You know what I mean? Like, listen, I can take you for like an hour at a time, Brent, but anything more than that, I'm like, nothing against you, dude, nothing against you, but I have things to do. (laughs) I got football to watch. The Hawks are on tonight. I got to, you know, do all of this. But when the Hebrew people, uh, talked about what comes next. And it translates over into the New Testament as, as well. It was a picture not of like this forever, never-ending worship service. I mean, it is like that. But for them, it was a life where we get to reap the fruit of, all, of the work that we have invested into the land. We have enough to sustain us. The production is there. We're not worried about the ebbs and flows. We are able to live. We are able to leisure without fear of loss or death or pain. For them, they would say, listen, in this life, work takes up a large chunk of what we do. We get a small taste of leisure And it's enough to whet our appetite for a future in which leisure becomes the primary thing that we do. And we are not restricted based on time or ability or pain or whatever. That there's no language of, I would love to do that, but my knees just don't let me do it anymore. I would love to experience that and do that, but just the finances just aren't there. I just And and then eventually we get to the spot in our life where we just ran out of time. And they would say, listen, for us, we believe that God has created us in this dual nature of under his submission, but freedom to play. And that our future includes a massive amounts of freedom, a massive amounts of enjoying creation for experience's sake. The Christianity and salvation, or sorry, creation and salvation have often been treated as two different things. You either choose one or choose the other. And, and that I think that their perception of it was, no, those two are far more intertwined, that there's a deep fellowship with God's creation, that God's redemption encompasses all of creation, including the land and its fruitfulness. The Christian life calls us to recover our God-given place in this great community of creation by learning to treasure God's gifts and enjoy them faithfully and uh, responsibly. Listen, the ultimate, the bottom line, the point that kickstarts this series, listen, there's probably more questions that come up than than reasons. I want to talk about joy. I want to dive into 
why we do this escape and all of this. But the bottom line for today is the grace of God comes to us through, not apart from our enjoyment of the physical world. If we have ever, if you've ever grown up in a church environment where it's like, well, you choose either um, God or fun, there are, are then th- that's a false choice. It's a false choice. And sometimes the categories of the things that we put in fun aren't truly fun. They're fun in the moment, but in the long term, they're very destructive for us, what we call them fun. And, and so that would be under that authority. That would be trusting under the authority and living under the uh, submission of God. But once that's secure, once that's in, in place, I believe that there is, an, uh, there is a side of, of this of play, there's, there's that you that you and I were created to enjoy God's goodness through His creation, and to be responsible stewards of it, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. The grace of God comes to us through, not apart from enjoyment of the physical world. Let's pray, Father. I pray that you would help some of this stuff to be able to sink into our hearts into our minds, into our, our motivations for us as we kind of go through life. And, and we are, are, are spending this uh, time that we have, this temporary thing, this temporary nature called time on things that are work, that we would find production in our work, but then we would also enjoy, enjoy the fruits of our labor, that we would enjoy life as it was meant to be lived. And as we do it, we, we do it not out of selfish things, but because that's part of the reason that you created us. And as we do it, we become, it reminds us to be grateful and gracious towards a good and loving God who created these things for us and implanted within us a longing for a time and an existence uh, where the threat of loss and fear of destruction and death and pain, and um, that that would be non-existent anymore. So give us the wisdom to know how to navigate these thoughts as we go through our life and our daily schedule this week and our family and the courage to act on it. In your name, amen.